Um, well, yes, good morning. Today brings us to the second talk in our series entitled Exodus Express. That really is quite bad, isn't it? Exodus Express. I'm calling this talk, um, as often happens today, Moses and the Change Management Curve. Woo-woo. Is that weird or what? If you missed the first talk, please take time to catch up with the podcast. In it, we saw why Exodus is so vital to our understanding of the whole Bible. Why Exodus is often called the controlling narrative of the Bible. And this study is an express train, not a stopping train. Or if you prefer, it's an espresso rather than a a cappuccino or or a latte. It's concentrated for a fast hit. The scenic bus tour approach, the lingering cappuccino approach certainly have their place in our study of God's word. But, um, so, you know, feel free to read around these sermons as much as you like and and go to uh, do the extracurricular on it. And then bring your questions maybe to home group or to pub church on a Friday lunchtime. But our job in these Sundays is going to be just to get the story told and to hit Mount Sinai running at uh, chapter 20, just a bit after Easter. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw the suffering of the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. And we also witnessed God's first preparations of what's going to be his answer to their cry for help. Those chapters introduce Exodus, and by extension, we could say, introduce the whole Bible, as primarily this story of a people and their God. And secondarily, one where God chooses to act through a particular person. And the catchphrase of talk one was, the plan is a man. One thing that an exodus mindset, which is shared by all the Bible writers and should be shared by its readers as well, one thing an exodus mindset assumes, which is very different from our own culture, is that our lives are to be experienced primarily as the story of a whole people group. St. Paul expounded the same sort of idea in 1 Corinthians 12 when he spoke of the, uh, the church as a body and all of us as different parts. I might be a pectoral muscle or a pancreas or a something unmentionable, but we all play our part in making the body work together. Exodus foreshadows that detailed picture, but it's also painting a much bigger one, one that speaks powerfully of God's cosmic plan to reconcile not just one people group, but the whole world, as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, to himself. We left Moses ruined, a man on the run, a prince of Egypt now wanted for murder. He escaped into Arabia, married the daughter of a local priest, and began raising a family. And chapter 2 closed with God taking knowledge of Israel's suffering and remembering his covenant with their forefathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we'll have more about covenants to come later on in this series. So I shan't explain it now. We're going to read two chapters today, and this time I want to break them down into four bite-sized chunks, or relatively bite-sized. Some of them are a bit chewier than others. Showing four essential stages in God's preparation of Moses, who is the principal agent in his wonderful plan for his people Israel. First is the calling So grabbing hold of an unsuspecting Moses and putting the plan on his radar for the first time. Then comes the objections that Moses raises. And the third section deals with God's answers to those objections. And finally, we find Moses kind of agreeing to the plan 
and finally agreeing to take action. Those of you who have any business training or uh, in change management or have read the appendices, as I'm sure all home group leaders have, to the home group leaders manual, will recognize those four stages as exactly the same as what change management theory talks about as the change management curve. Four stages. Could we have the slide up, possibly? Can you find it? Can you locate it? Can you? Otherwise, I'll have to describe it to you, which would be much more difficult. Mm, yeah, well, uh, yeah, that'll do. It's not, it's not really drawn as a curve there, but, um, uh, but you, see the, the, you see the move goes between these four quadrants. We start in, in denial, where we're not admitting there is a problem or that we can do anything about it. Then we move into resistance, and then exploration, and finally acceptance. And this, we're told, is a universal pattern for how people change their minds. And very importantly, it seems to describe particularly accurately what happens in our lives when we make a decision to make Christ our Lord. It tracks the changing of an attitude from there is no problem to why should I accept your solution to this is great, I get to choose what to do. And eventually, then perhaps with a little bit of encouragement to, okay, then you're right, what do I do? Meanwhile, back in Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 1, we find Moses in that initial state that we call denial. There's no problem, or if there is, I can't do anything about it. Douglas Adams brilliantly refers to this in his, uh, his wonderful four-book trilogy that later became a five-book trilogy. Yeah, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I hope you're all familiar. He, says, he describes how this huge spaceship can be totally concealed from view by pressing one button on the dashboard that's called a somebody else's problem field. As often happens today, God's first step is to confront Moses with an unexpected reality. As if you're walking down the West Sands one day, and all of a sudden, a massive spaceship just appears parked on the beach in front of you. Let's read chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is part one, denial and God's calling. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. That he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a new and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the six named tribes. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out 
of Egypt. Now this, if you are ever in a Sunday school, is the well-known story of the burning bush. An ordinary living thing invested with a completely different nature, a supernatural fire. No wonder Moses went to look. The bush was on fire, but it remained completely unharmed, verse 2. Living unscathed, even though it was engulfed in flame. Now this is a vivid picture of Moses' life, as it will soon be. A human life, like any one of ours, filled with a potentially dangerous but incredibly beautiful otherness, which is the fire of God's presence. When the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Acts 2, he came in tongues of fire that rested on their heads without burning them, changing them but not harming them. And with their classical sort of Jewish exodus mindset, their thoughts must have run immediately to this story about the burning bush. Now this burning bush event is often described as a a Christophany, which means an appearance of Jesus himself long before his actual birth. The spiritual being in verse 2 who's uh, able to inhabit a fireball, this angel of the Lord as he is known, seems in verse 4 to be identical with God. In verse 6, he speaks God's words exactly as God would, using I language, not you language. So it does seem to be God. But whether or not we buy that Christophany theory, there's a great deal we can learn here from the order of events through which God first calls Moses. This would make a a good sermon in itself. But the express train just toots its whistle, woo-woo, and moves on. So a quick view is all you get from the window. One, the attention-grabbing miracle. Two, the personal specific calling by name, rather than, oi, you there. Three, the pause for Moses to reply, indicating that he's actually attentive. Three, the establishment of boundaries in verse five. Four, the clear identification of God in relation to both Moses, the God of your father, and of the entire people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse six. Five, the statement of God's motivation, his compassion on the people, verse 7. His intention, verses 8 and 9, to act on their behalf. Six, their astonishingly brief first outline of his plan. It's just broad brushstrokes, isn't it? And finally, the amazing therefore in verse 10. I have decided to act, therefore you go. And if you remember, Jesus echoes that same paradigm in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in earth and heaven has been given to me, therefore you go. This is something we'd better get used to about God. He acts out of love for his people and out of his unchanging faithfulness to his promises. But he chooses to act through ordinary people. Here, as often happens today, the plan is a man and not one who'd have been our first choice either. Uh, Don Francisco, if you remember him, uh, picks up this frequent theme of God's unlikely heroes in a song about Balaam and the talking donkey, which you find in Numbers 22. Anyone remember that story? And the song ends, So when the Lord starts using you, don't you pay it any mind. He could have used the dog next door if he'd been so inclined. Ding, 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 ding. Could have used the dog next door if he'd been so inclined. In these first ten verses, God engages in uh, what we might see as classic 
first stage change management in Moses' heart and mind. He first grabs his attention, then confronts him with the problem and the part he has to play in solving it. Moses certainly wasn't in denial about the existence of the problem. The whole reason he was stuck out there uh, with a bunch of sheep in the middle of Arabia was because of the problem. But as often happens today, for many of God's people, he was in complete denial that he could do anything about it. And to be fair, that was based on a pretty accurate self-assessment. But maybe that was precisely the problem with his worldview, that he was doing a self-assessment. If he'd taken full account of the love, the faithfulness, the power of God, he might have sought God's help when he was back in Egypt. His own abilities had made him a murderer and a fugitive. But had he understood God's abilities and his willingness to work through an ordinary human being, a sinful woman or man, then perhaps he could have had this conversation 40 years earlier. Two, resistance. Moses' many objections. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I'll be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the six named tribes, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I'll do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not listen to me, or uh, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. 
And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Well, The first of Moses' many objections in verse 11 is, who am I? On the face of it, that seems like a good question to ask when God starts involving us in his plans. And as an expression of humility, it's a perfectly good question. But God's answer in verse 12 shows that as regards our qualification to act for him, it's completely irrelevant. Who am I, Lord? Well, who indeed? But I will be with you. An often hostile world, our enemy the devil, and even our own conscience itself will sometimes ask us the same question. Who do you think you are? We have to learn to answer, at least within ourselves, that the question is not who we are, less still who we think we are, but who has sent us. And that's pretty much the question Moses moves on to in verse 13. He wants to know a name. How can he say that a burning bush sent him? It's not very impressive, is it? And the answer that God gives is both more enigmatic and strange than Moses probably wished it was, but it's also a great deal fuller than just a name. We could, we could talk into the next, middle of next week meditating on, on the name that God chooses to call himself by, the Hebrew Yahweh, I am. Philosophically, it describes an eternal being, one who is more real than anything we see around us, the very essence of being, the creator and sustainer of everything that we associate with existence, and then God's self-definition continues right on to the end of the chapter, if you notice. And we should remember this is the same God that we worship as his people today. He's not only the ineffable I am, the first cause of all things. He's also, verse 15, the highly personal God who made a covenant with their forefathers, one to one, and who will keep it. He's also the God who sees their suffering, verse 16. He's the God who will bring them out of slavery into the promised land, verse 17. He's the God who accurately predicts the, uh, the future, verses 18 and 19, and perfectly understands human reactions. He's the God, verse 20, who will do amazing signs and wonders. Uh, he's the God who will even give them favor with the Egyptians, in verses 21 and 22. So they come out of Egypt, not the impoverished slaves they're used to being, but actually laden down with jewelry and fine clothes. When we ask God who he is, he has to temper his answer to what we can comprehend. But when we see how he chooses to define himself in this passage, in, in terms of what he will by his very nature do to us and for us, then surely the only appropriate response is gratitude and worship. Yet, Chapter 4 opens not with gratitude and worship, but with another objection. But they won't believe me. Now, God has suddenly moved him, Moses, from that denial phase into the resistance phase, but he doubts his own ability to do the same for the elders of Israel. After all, he can't show them a miracle like the burning bush, can he? Can he? He completely misunderstands the nature of God's sending. 
When, when a human master sends us somewhere, we go out of his or her presence when we go. But when God sends us, and again, this is something that Jesus echoes in the Great Commission, our going guarantees that God goes with us. So, opening with a question Moses will never forget, what's that in your hand? He must have asked himself that many times as he walked across the desert. What is this in my hand? Is it a staff or is it a snake? Beginning with that question, what is that in your hand? God shows Moses the signs and wonders he's going to do to convince the Egyptians. It must have been hard to look at that staff in quite the same way or lean on it with the same confidence. Likewise, after he put his hand in his cloak and it became leprous and came out all well again, he must have, uh, he must have been a bit slower to use the expression, I know this desert like the back of my... Now he's, yeah, gotcha. He's now, he's now running out of excuses, isn't he? And I think at this point he's moved in that wonderful diagram that I'm sure you loved so much. He's moved from the second stage, stage of resistance, into stage three, which is exploration. If I do this, what does that mean? Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and tongue, he said eloquently. Then the Lord said to him, who made a man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be like God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And now that Moses has seen God turn his staff into a snake and switch leprosy kind of on and off like a light switch, we can be pretty sure that he now accepts he'd better do what God says. At least sometime. And as often happens today, that sometime can go on for some time. All the same, he's been forced to think, what happens if I do go ahead with this? What will it be like? When he comes to imagine himself in front of those crusty old elders, verse 10, how on earth is he going to explain himself? This is the guy who abandoned his enslaved people twice, once to go and live the life of Riley in the oppressor's palace, and a second time fleeing abroad as a murderer and outlaw. Now he turns up, aged 80, to lead them out of slavery? It's a pretty hard sell, isn't it, in human terms? But of course, verse 11 he has to think about it in heavenly terms. Whoever we are, however feeble we might be, can God empower us or not? God has been very patient up to this point, but in verse 13, Moses does finally overstep the mark. The old timers who, who brought me up used to say, um, you can either say yes, Lord, or you can say no. What you can't say is no, Lord. 
Moses calls God Adonai, Lord, but he refuses to obey him. No wonder God is angry. You see, there's, there's no room for modesty when God tells you to do something. False modesty or true modesty. There's only room for obedience. But angry as he is, verse 14, God doesn't just give up on Moses and, and, and choose somebody else. He actually gives way to Moses in this and appoints Aaron as his spokesman. It's extraordinary, isn't it? We might well wonder if this is really the best thing for anyone concerned, that God's plan should be adjusted to suit the faithlessness of a man. Now, good change management um, outlaws anger entirely as a motivating thing. And it says in, in James 1, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We're never going to get anyone to change their mind by getting cross with them. But God's anger is a different thing, different nature altogether. It's untinged with any, any weakness or self-doubt or insecurity. It seeks the best for us at all times. And though he does get angry with Moses here, there's nothing in his response that really shows that. Rather, he generously removes Moses' final objection and helps him move at last, at last, you will say, from stage three into stage four, which is acceptance. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent to him, and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. As often happens today, once Moses decides to obey God, then things move pretty quickly. And, as often happens today, with each step along the path of obedience, God reveals more and more of the plan. Even though God has spoken, it's important to get the blessing of our authority figures if we can, and in verse 18, Jethro immediately and the circumstances, rather strangely, gives his. One suspects that, as often happens today, God had been working behind the scenes, preparing not just Moses, our, our hero, the central character, but other characters in the mix as well. 
And it's at this point that the Lord speaks again, verse 19, with a completely new encouragement. The arrest warrant has, as it were, expired. This is the kind of encouragement that we can expect from the Lord only after we say yes to him. He actually wants us to to say yes when it seems more difficult than it's going to be because it is going to get difficult along the way. Then as they go, verse 21, God speaks again, revealing still more of his purposes in regard to Pharaoh. And this is a famous old chestnut about was God unfair to Pharaoh? Was God unfair And it's long been a sort of favorite stalking horse for those who prefer to sit in judgment on God's holy word rather than let it sit in judgment on them. And you'll come to it in a couple of weeks when Carol and I are sunning ourselves in Penang. So good luck with that. But in fact, but in fact, sneak preview, the plague chapters uh, that Jesse's going to be taking you through, what you're actually going to see is that Pharaoh at first opposes God because his heart was already hard. Then he opposed God because he hardened his own heart quite deliberately. And only after that does God say, okay, if that's what you want, I'm not going to let you turn back. Anytime you're tempted to to soften, I'm going to just harden your heart again and make an example of you. And the point is that if we really want a showdown with God, then we can have one. But I don't recommend it. In verse 22, God reveals yet more of himself and his purposes for his people when he calls Israel, plural, his firstborn son, singular. Now, isn't that what he calls Jesus? Mess with your mind? Good. But perhaps Moses should have paid a bit more attention to this language about the firstborn son. An essential element in the covenant God made with Abraham was the circumcision of every male child. And it's something that Moses simply hadn't done. It must have been an area of his life that he tried to hold back from God. But, as often happens today, once we engage fully in obedience with God, then those things get exposed and have to be dealt with. As we used to say in the police, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. What's it going to be? Moses chose the hard way. And perhaps that's because maybe his non-Jewish wife, Zipporah, didn't want their baby circumcised. That's another, as often happens today. People, People that we love pulling us away from purity before God. And for us, as for Moses, it has to be dealt with. If that interpretation is correct, then hats off to Zipporah, who then deals with the issue ruthlessly when push comes to shove. It is she who performs this emergency circumcision with a handy flint. Ouch. And her former reluctance would explain maybe why she chucks the severed foreskin at Moses' feet, calling him a bloody bridegroom. It is marrying him that has brought this bloodshed into her family. But there's at least one other possible interpretation. Perhaps it was actually the other way around. It was she who'd been saying all along, let's get on and circumcise this boy. Maybe it was Moses who had deliberately not done it because he'd actually turned his back on God when he felt rejected and alone. Perhaps he simply never got round to it. That would be quite male, wouldn't it? 
That interpretation as well would be a fine example of an as often happens today. The great man of God corrected by his wife. This painful episode over, we can imagine a sort of a chastened Moses plodding along, maybe avoiding eye contact with an angry wife and a limping son. Not funny, except that it is. Journeying on back to the mountain where he first met with God. And there, by, by divine appointment, they meet his even older brother, Aaron. Now, Aaron, clearly a man who hears from God, as we see in verse 27, is instantly on board with this plan, unlikely as it sounds. And together, once they get to Egypt, they gather the gather elders of Israel. Aaron tells them the plan, performs the signs. And unlike their reluctant Moses, their buy-in to the project is absolutely immediate. And they respond in the only way possible, worship. It's not always going to be that way. In the years and miles ahead of them and in the pages ahead of us, time and again, it's going to be the other way around. Moses obeying and worshipping God and the people rebelling against him. But at this turning point in the story, they believe and they worship as we are about to do. In Romans 12, that central teaching in the Bible on worship, St. Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's a continuing process, which in the vineyard we like to describe in the phrase, come as you are, don't stay as you are. God is constantly at work in us to change our minds, our hearts, away from what we're used to, towards what we need to become used to if we're going to be fit for heaven. Whatever God is currently changing in our lives, wherever we stand on that change management curve, Moses' experience in chapters 3 and 4 is instructive. We've only had time to whistle past the main parts of the story, but do examine it, read it, read some commentaries, talk to each other about it, bring it to home group, bring it to pub church. It's a story of strange events in a strange setting, and I hope we've seen that at its heart it relates to an experience that often happens today. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. <clears throat> Lord and Father, we thank you for your, um, for your work in Moses' life. We thank you for your care for your people. I want to thank you that you, you long to set people free from things that enslave them. That you long to bring us out of hardship and poverty into uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. That it's in your nature to do these things. We thank you for your intervention in Moses' life. And in the lives of many of us in this room as well. We just invite your Spirit to come and move upon us now and lead us into all your ways. Now in a moment, I'm just going to ask you to to come forward if you're in any kind of need or if you feel the Lord speaking to you uh, through the worship or through the talk or anything else that's happened or or just incidentally. Um, 
and we'll just lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. It's a completely biblical practice. Um, and just before we... Just come as, as soon as we start singing. Just before that, Jane's got a word for us, I believe. <laughs>